far as Christmas, and you know, I'm sure today that uh, uh, just about in every church in town that uh, they're focusing on, uh, you know, the nativity scene and Christ coming into the world and all of that, and uh, I certainly don't have a problem with that. But I think so many times, you know, uh, we miss the whole point of things, and uh, you know, I always try, and I, somebody said it this morning, I, I think it was Barb said it when, uh, when she was up here with the kids, she talked about the fact that we're not a traditional church. And boy, that's an understatement, and uh, we always want to go after uh, the truth of things and look at things from a biblical standpoint and, and try to make the applications. And you remember last week that before we got into Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> I laid out the great doctrine of the rapture of the church. And I showed you how that it was absolutely necessary before you ever grasp the great material in Romans chapter 8 that you have some kind of framework to put it in. And I told you that uh, the doctrine of the rapture of the church is a, is a doctrine that is not taught today uh, by many churches and many Bible teachers. And last week there was a number of great lessons that was in that material, but one of, the, one of them was the fact that uh, you realize that when you lose your Bible, uh, you lose the, the Holy Spirit of God showing you and giving you the, uh, the revelation of the Word of God of, of different truths in the Bible. In fact, we talked about it. I gave you a great verse, and it ought to be a verse that you put into your, in your Bible and your daily work. It was over there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, For this cause thank we God also without receasing. For when you received the word of God which you have heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually also in you the believe. We talked about how that <clears throat> the Bible is the only book in the world that your attitude about it determines what you get out of it. And I showed you last week that without the concept of the rapture, there's really no meaning or understanding to Romans chapter 8. And that's why we had to grasp that concept first. And, uh, you know, Romans chapter 8, the theme of Romans chapter 8, is really the death of the Christian in relationship to a future events and, in, in reality, the redemption of your body. And uh, what I want to do in Romans chapter 8, and you're probably asking yourself, how does this fit in with a Christmas message? Well, I'll explain that here in just a little bit uh, and how, uh, how it's going to work. <clears throat> but I want to give you a breakdown of Romans chapter 8 to help you put it in perspective because there's a lot of material here. Now, I would suggest that in this particular scenario here, what you do is this. And if you would look at my Bible, you would find that Romans, the book of Romans was such a book that I had to get down that it's probably, uh, if you would look at my Bible, you would find that almost every verse is bracketed. And around those brackets, there's maybe a one-line sentence or a one-line deal, whatever it may be, that, uh, you know, that will explain to you uh, what that particular verse is dealing with. And it helps you when, it, when you come to the book of, of, uh, of Romans, it helps you uh, figure it out. But you're going to find that Romans 8 breaks down into four sections. And we definitely want to get these four sections in your Bible and in your mind now and as we come through each section. And even though it breaks down into four sections, uh, all four sections are themed around one concept, and that concept is the concept of an adoption. In fact, there's two adoptions in Romans chapter 8. And understanding Romans chapter 8 is crucial in understanding the concept of these two adoptions. Remember I said last week, and I was kind of playing with you a little bit and just kind of... Um, uh, didn't want to confuse you, but I, I told you that if you're, if you're saved here this morning, there's been a time in your life where you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, 
And I used the phrase that in reality you're only half saved. And I didn't want that to scare anybody because, you know, you get young Christians sometimes that they only hear part of it or they don't understand it. But I explained it by this. If you're saved this morning, what's saved about you is your soul. See? Your body is not yet saved. We've been studying all through Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 7 about the battle that we have between our old nature and our new nature. You see, your new nature is your soul. That's what's saved. Your old nature is your flesh. That's not saved. That's why we have such a struggle with it. But Romans chapter 8 does this. Romans chapter 8 shows you how that your soul was adopted the day you got saved. And then it focuses on the future event, which is when your body and my body is going to be redeemed also and uh, and adopted uh, when we get the glorious body of Christ. You remember last week when we come through the rapture, I ran you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I, I showed you, uh, you know, uh, all the verses in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we looked at all of these different aspects uh, of how that's going to take place. So as I lay this out this morning in our intro here, you want to you wanna at some point get these four sections in your Bible and then kind of break it down from there and see how it works. Now, <clears throat> You know, let me bring, that brings us back to our, our Christmas message today. You know what? I can't think of a better gift I could give you as a church. I cannot think of a better gift that I could give you as a church than a gift that would absolutely guarantee if you don't take it back. You know, a gift is only good if you keep it. And I could give you, a, you know, you all get gifts we don't necessarily, don't fit, we don't like, or whatever the case, and somebody says, if you don't like it, you can take it back. Well, that's true the gift that God has for you today into this message. Because if you don't like it, you can always give it back. But obviously in our lives, in your life, in my life, when we come down to this time of the year and we look at the last year, you realize that in the counseling world that the most oppressive time and the time that uh, if you, when I was running a counseling ministry, the time that the appointment would just go off the wall was right after Christmas and right after New Year's. They'll tell you that that is the most depressing time of the year. Now, there's a couple of reasons for it. One of the reasons is a, is a no-brainer, and that is because your charge card bills come in, <laughs> and that in itself is enough to depress you. But along with that, you find that there's something about us as human beings that when we come down to the end of something, we always get reflective. When somebody is in the hospital and it looks like maybe you're, uh, they're, they're an elderly person or maybe they've been hurt in a car wreck and it looks like maybe they won't make it or they're, they're having, it's very iffy and, or, or maybe the doctor says, you know, that they've got a terminal disease and they're going to die and they've only got a short period of time. You know the first thing when you're faced with that reality, what it does it puts you in a mood of reflection. You leave the hospital, and all you do is think about where you were in life with them at certain points in time. That's the way God made us. And that's why at the end of every year, at the end of every year, when we come to face a beginning of a new year, we as human beings look back and we become reflective. We look back at maybe, uh, you know, some of the bad times. We look back and think of the good times. We look back and think of maybe the people that, uh, that uh, God connected us with, or in some cases, unconnected us with. 
and we, it, it, I, don't care, I don't care if your year's been good or your year's been bad. When we come to this point of time every year, we look back with a reflection on where we've been and it, it, you think about those kind of things. You know, the goal of everybody in life. I've never met anybody that, that when they get up and you ask them what's their goal in life, they say, my goal in life is to be miserable. <laughs> I've never met anybody in my life in all the years in ministry that their goal in life was self-destruction. Now, they may get to that point in their life at some point, but they didn't start out that way. Everything in life that we face today is got a positive smiley face put on it. We want to have the illusion that uh, next year is going to be better than last year. That's why I said earlier that for time and eternity, around New Year's, that we've always, we all make our New Year's resolutions. Things that we're going to do differently this year than we didn't do last year. And truly, as far as, as, far as God's people is concerned, most, it doesn't, as I said earlier, you don't need a resolution, you need a revolution. You need to overthrow the president government living inside you and turn it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you a gift this morning. And I, I'm sorry, it's not out of Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 2 or uh, there or 3 or 4 or where it talks about Christ being born and the wise men showing up and the star over Bethlehem. That's all good stuff. I'm sure by next Thursday you'll have your fill of that through watching TV and, and whatever you do and wherever you go, you'll hear it all the time. You can't drive down the street without seeing a church that has a live nativity out there, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and you get your fill of that. But you know what? When you stop and think about that, other than the fleeting moment that you think about, or other than the fleeting moment that you think about Christ being born, by the time you get into the new year, you're gone with that. And nothing ever really changes. And I want to I take you to Romans 8 today. And I didn't plan this. It was just one of these things that God, in the process by which we're moving through Romans, just fit naturally in where we're at today. It wasn't something by design, not by me anyhow. But I want you to have, and I think you want to have. Does there, is there not anybody in here this morning that not, does not want to have a long life? I mean, I know the Bible says to die is, to die is gain, you know, and we're to, we're to set our affections on things above. I know that, but, you know, it's like somebody said one time, I, it was, he was a Christian guy, he says, I'm not a, I, I, it's not that I don't want to die, because I know I'm going to heaven, it's just I don't want to go through the process to get there. Because death can be a hard thing sometimes. And is there anybody here that doesn't say, I'd like to have a long life? Obviously, that's what the world wants. Is there anybody here that would say, I don't, I, want, I don't want to be happy in life? Is there anybody here that would say, I, I really I don't want to be fulfilled in my life. I want to go around with that empty feeling in my side, <coughs> inside me. Is there anybody here that would say, I don't want to be productive in life? Is there anybody in society today that would actually say, you know what, I really don't want to be satisfied. And, I, and, and truth of the matter is, everything that gets us in trouble in life, Saved or unsaved, everything that gets us in trouble in life is because we have those things, every one of them. We want to live long. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be productive. We want to be satisfied. We want to have a good life. And everything we endeavor to do in our lives is because we think if I do that, if I get this, if I accomplish this, if I get her, if I get him, if I get this, if I get this job, if I, get, if I win the lottery, 
tie belong to the Lord. If you, if you, everything that we do. I, this is a true story. I had a Baptist preacher friend of mine. He used to, he wailed and wailed and wailed on gambling and all that stuff. And he, he was just, uh, he preached on the lottery every day, uh, every Sunday. I mean, he was just, it was big in their state. And he just put it out. And then, and, and, and he would beat his people up. And you know what? You know how God, you know how I know God got a sense of humor? A woman in her, his church won the lottery, got $68 million when it was all said and done. And now he's faced with a dilemma. You obviously know what that dilemma is. It's amazing how we change our perspective on things when, when it becomes our advantage, doesn't it, huh? Where once it was, that's of the devil, and boy, you do that when you win it, it's of, well, if the devil's going your way, right, him, you know, I'd rather have that money come into God's work than go out there and, well, yeah, right, you see. We all want to be happy. We all want to be fulfilled. We all want to be satisfied. We all want to be productive. You know, Romans chapter 8, in the first section we're going to look at here in just a second, has some of the greatest practical material you'll ever find in life. I don't think there's any more other place in the Bible that I know of where it's all collectively put in one form that you have the formula. You have the formula for a long and a happy and a fulfilled and a productive and a satisfying life. I, don't, I, couldn't, I would be hard-pressed to find another place in the Bible that had all of the material so collectively put in form. And I think in light of what we're going to do New Year's Eve, and I, you know, we've got a lot of you people that, that have really plugged into the Bible, you're really beginning to build a relationship with God. You've overcome a lot of the initial things that you had to deal with. And uh, it's time for us to, to focus uh, inwardly now. And I think that, that this message in light of what we're going to do, uh, not this Thursday night, but next Thursday night in the aspect of Song of Solomon, will take <coughs> many of you, <coughs> many of you, and really give you that edge on next year. That you can start 2009... <coughs> And like I said, if you, if you keep this gift you have today, if you don't say, ah, it doesn't fit me, I'm going to take it back, or no thanks, I don't want it, but if you'll accept the gift that God has for you today in Romans chapter 8 in this first section and apply it to your life and let that be the catalyst by which you move into the Song of Solomon next week when we leave no stone unturned as far as you leaving here with a new year in your mind and your heart knowing exactly how God looks at you what he thinks of you, how he looks at you every day of your life, and then what you're supposed to think and look back at him every day of your life. And of course, that's where we're at. Now, let me give you these four sections here. Section 1 will run through verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 to verse 14. And this is where we're going to find our message today and with some of the most absolutely incredible practical principles for the victorious Christian life. You want a long life? It's in here. You want a happy life? It's in here. You want a life of fulfillment? It's in this passage. You want a productive life and a life that satisfies? Here's where it's at. Then we have section 2. And section 2 will run from verse 15 all the way up to verse 22. 
And this is where we find our first spiritual adoption. We'll talk about this next week. This is where we find our first adoption, which is a spiritual adoption. This is the adoption of your soul the day you got saved. Then we're going to move into section 3. And section 3 will run from verse 23 all the way up to verse 32. And this is where we will find the second adoption, and this will be the adoption of your body, the physical redemption of your body through the rapture of the church, which we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 last week. Then the fourth section will run from verse 33 up and through verse 39. And it'll deal, it'll deal with the end result, the total of victory. And you have a better understanding of once you're a child of God and you understand what has transpired in your life, you'll understand why the victory in your life as a child of God, the long life, the happiness, the fulfillment, the productivity, and being satisfied, if you don't have those after running Romans chapter 8, there's something seriously wrong in your connected doodle bob. There's something not hooked up right. And the truth of the matter is, the reality of the victorious Christian life, it really rests, and we're not going to get into it today, but you'll see it when we get there. It really rests on verse 33 through 39 and your understanding of it because it forms the right attitude of heart that puts it all into perspective. Now, let's look at verses 1 through 14. Let's look at the gift that God has for you today that is better than any gift I could give you if I went back to Luke and Matthew and told you the Christmas story, got you a nice, warm, bubbly feeling inside, you know, and you could go back and you could think about the little baby back there in a manger and all of those things and, the, and all that nice, warm, fuzzy stuff that I have, I'm not against at all. I'm not against at all. But the reality is life's a lot tougher than that. And the reality is I want you to have a long life, a happy life, a fulfilled life, a productive life, and a satisfied life. So let's begin reading Romans chapter 8, and we'll read the first 14 verses. And then we'll come back and we'll make comment on them. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns Him in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are, af uh, that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But they that are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so, be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. And there's a reference to the redemption of your physical mortal body. Therefore, brethren... Because of what I just said, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. But if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for those that are here today. We pray, Father, that the Word of God will go out and touch somebody's life today. 
Lord, we're not here to give nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. We're not here, Lord, to, to necessarily uh, make everybody feel good. We're here, Lord, because the Bible contains truth. And the truth of the matter is, if we want to have a successful year next year, if we want to have those things that we all want to have, then there's going to have to be some things in our life that we understand. Help us today. Help us to take this first section and lay it out and put it into perspective. And Lord, help me to lay it out the way you'd have me to lay it out. And forgive us where we failed you. Put us under the blood. And Lord, we pray that we might receive and might give the Bible today in a fashion that would be pleasing to you. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, again, in my Bible, not only will you have the four sections, but I suggest that, because I'm basically going to come down through this verse by verse. Uh, this is what you call suppository, I mean, excuse me, expository <laughs> preaching. In many cases, it is suppository preaching, but that's okay. But what, I can't say it. We're going to take these verses verse by verse. And now in my Bible, if you look at it, and you can if you want, $25 a pop. But if you want to look at it, you'll see that Romans, for me, was such a hard book to grasp, because I'm not a very bright guy, that I had to, I had to almost break it down with a, with a little bracket and a little one-line meaning after every verse so I would see it and read it because I can't remember it. And I suggest that you do that too uh, if you really want to learn the book of Romans. You don't have to try to do it today. I'd get the tape and, and it takes some time and, and takes some work to go down and through it. Now verse 1 is the first verse we want to look at here and it's a great verse. It says, there is, it, uh, there is therefore, and of course the word therefore always means because of what we just talked, went through. There is therefore <coughs> now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And the key word here is the word condemnation. And we talked about the fact, we, we, we touched on this earlier, and you need to understand that I talked about the fact that a Christian can be condemned, now listen very carefully, a Christian can be condemned and he can be damned and yet never die and go to hell. The reason for that is, is because in the Bible there's two kinds of condemnation and there's two kinds of damnation. There's a damnation of your soul, which is when an unsaved man or woman dies and spends an eternity in the lake of fire. But for a believer who walks not after the Spirit but walks after the flesh, there's a physical condemnation or a damnation. Remember the story in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? where Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth, and they had a man there in that church that was in sin and wouldn't repent. Remember the advice he gave that church? He said, turn him over to Satan. Now, that seems like a very harsh thing for a pastor to say about a person in his church. But if you pastored a while, there's a lot of that you like to turn over to Satan at some point in your life. You just can't always do it. But anyway, he said this. He says, this is Paul. This is not Bob now. This is Paul, the greatest Christian that probably ever lived, giving an advice to a church about a man who would not do what's right in the face of his sin. And you know what he said? He said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See what he's saying? Basically, he's saying there, he won't do what's right. Turn him over to the devil as far as the flesh is concerned. Let him live his riotous lifestyle. Cut ties with him. Tell him that if the devil tells him so well and takes care of him, then go serve the devil. And in the process, the devil will not do him any favors and will destroy his and damn and condemn his flesh. And when he does that, that may be the only hope you have of getting him back and dealing with him 
once the devil takes him down the road. It's the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son in the Gospels that he left his father, took his inheritance, and he went out there? And, and what brought him back? What brought him back? I'll tell you what brought him back. He got tired of eating the swine and the pig food. He got tired of sleeping with the pigs. He got tired of laying in the mud. He got tired of eating out of the same uh, husk that the swine ate out of. It just found out that when he was going down that road, leaving his father's house, I'm sure he had glamorous visions of Las Vegas, you know, and glittery lights and all party time and playboy style and get me a big yacht and, and all these things. And it wound up in a pig pen in the mud, sleeping there with the pigs and eating what they ate. You see, it took the destruction of his flesh to a certain degree. For he woke up and came to, and I love the verse, the Bible says, and he came to himself. You know what that means? You know what it means in the Greek? It means he came to himself. <laughs> he woke up one morning and said, man, I'm hungry. He woke up one morning and he thought he had a dream and he thought he was with Miss Playmate Night of July and, and he had his arms around her and he was holding her and stroking her and he looked up and opened his eyes and it was a 500-pound sow pig. <laughs> in, his, in his dream, he said, I love you. And he got back a... <laughs> That's what got him to it. Pig lips. And he woke up one day and said, he, the Bible says, he came to himself. You know what the end of the year is about, really, in a reflective mood? You and I coming to ourselves. That's all it is. That's all it is. Now, in his case, he was honest enough. Once he came to himself, he went back where he needed to get back. I've met a lot of God's people that when they come to themselves, they really don't come to themselves. They just blame somebody else for their problems and, and have more problems. But the verse says in verse 1, there is now, therefore now no condemnation. If you walk after the Spirit of God, that's where you have the, 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 long, the longevity, the happiness, the fulfillment. But when you, when, you, when you walk after the flesh, then there is a condemnation physically. Not your soul, but your body. A couple of weeks ago, I, I preached to a message that probably was one of the greatest messages you'll ever get, not because it came from me, but because of the content. And it talked about the bad choices we make in life. It's an incredible uh, uh, outline that God uh, used that morning. And bad choices will lead to the pig pen, just as simple as that. I had a man say to me one time, he says, did you ever notice how people equate things and they say things, but they really don't understand what they're really saying and how it impacts the truth of life? But they, they kind of just get a glimpse of it. I had a man said, I think your hell's on earth one time. And I thought to myself, you know what? For a Christian, it is. You realize that if you're saved this morning, this earth is as close as you're ever going to get to hell. And you realize that if you're an unsaved person this morning, this earth is as close as you're ever going to get to heaven. Somebody says, well, I think, you're, I think you make your own hell on earth. You're right if you're a Christian. Hey, I've seen some of God's people go through stuff that they said, a guy said to me one time, Bob, I'm just in hell. And I said, no, no, you're not. 
You're not suffering. You're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, I am. You're not, you're not suffering. He said, but it's so hard. I can't go through it. It's just really rough. And I said, what you're suffering is a physical condemnation and a physical damnation because you've walked after the flesh, not after the Spirit. And we as God's people, we make our own hell here. God never intended us for it. God wants your life and my life to be happy. He wants it to be fulfilled. He wants it to be productive. He wants us to be satisfied. He wants us to experience the joy. But as a child of God, you're never going to hell spiritually. But boy, you can spend some time in it on this planet physically. And it can be rough. It can be rough. All right, now look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, so far in Romans, and this is where kind of where Romans gets confusing. I don't know if you're keeping count or not, but we've come up against three or four different laws here, and none of them are the same. And when you start reading all these laws in Romans, if you don't keep it straight and understand what they are, you know, we've got, a, we've got an Old Testament mosaic law that he talked about in Romans chapter 7. He's got a law of sin and death that he talked about in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He's got a law of your mind that he talked about in chapter 7, verse 23. And in a law at war in your members, and also in chapter 7, verse 23. And now in 8, 2, a law of the spirit of life. That's five, five different laws that he's talking about. And in time, as you put all this stuff together, I, you'll learn how to see what those are. This law of the spirit of life is an absolute law that takes place the day you and I get saved. It has three parts to it. First part's the new birth. We know all about that. We've studied it for weeks now. The second part is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We've talked about that. And the third part is spiritual circumcision. We've laid that out and we've talked about that. Those three parts make up the automatic law, which is called the law of the spirit of life. They, it's an automatic law that goes into effect the day you got saved. You know, if you, if you, uh, most laws are that, 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 that God makes are automatic. The day you become past the point of accountability and you choose to disobey God's law, it's an automatic law that you become dead in trespasses of sin. And if, if you, the day you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, an automatic law goes into effect. The law that he was talking about here, the law of, of, uh, of, of life in Christ Jesus. They're automatic. This law uh, frees you and me from the law of sin and death brought on us by the Old Testament Mosaic law that we couldn't keep. And now you are free from the flesh on the inside, and now you have the ability to walk in a newness of life, but the law of sin and death, your flesh, is still present, and we deal with it. This is why I gave you a key phrase a couple of weeks ago, and I told you how important it was to get it in your mind. Once you're, before you're saved, you are stuck. Your soul is stuck to your flesh. Once you get saved, God separates under the law here. He separates, the, he separates your, your flesh from your spirit or your soul. And now you're not stuck to it anymore, but you're still stuck with it. And this is where the battle comes in of, of Paul in Romans 7 and other places where you and I, this is what he's talking about in chapter 8, verse 1, where he's telling us to not walk after the flesh, but walk after the spirit. Now look at verse 3, 4, and 5. 
For what the law could not do in that it was weak, through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled on us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. You want to mark that word mind there. We're going to come back to it in a second. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now this is a great passage for a number of reasons. One of the aspects of it that is incredible is that this passage shows the weakness of the law. Now when it says down here, it says, uh, uh, for, the law, for what the law could not do in that it was weak, through the flesh. Let me tell you what he's meaning there. You want to get this understanding in there. In the Old Testament law, it had to be kept by the men themselves, men in flesh and blood bodies. In the Old Testament law, when you did something under the Old Testament, if you broke the law, then you as a man or a woman had to go get a sacrifice, pay the money for that sacrifice, take it to that priest and give it to him and he would take that and make the sacrifice for you and, and that's why the Bible says uh, the sacrifices of the law through the flesh. You doing it yourself. It was weak. The law couldn't do it. You know what the law is like in the Old Testament? The law is like driving down the freeway and seeing that it's a speed limit sign that says 55 miles an hour. The law will reveal to you and me what the speed limit is so we can stay within the law. That's what the law does. It reveals to me what the, what the standard is. But the law doesn't have the ability to pay my ticket if I break the law and get caught. See, the law has the ability to show you and I where we're wrong, but it does not have the ability to fix us when we break it. That's where it was weak. That's why the Bible says back in Hebrews, and you want to probably put this verse in along here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, he's saying, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. That's what they did in the Old Testament. When a man broke the law, he brought a, a, a turtle dove, a pigeon, depending on what his monetary situation was, or he brought a bull, or he brought a goat, or he brought a lamb, and they, they shed that innocent blood. And the Bible says that that was them in the flesh actually bringing something to them to fix their sin problem. And the Bible says that those offerings were weak through the law. Why? Because they couldn't pay for the sin. They couldn't take away the sin. And that's where the law was weak. That's what he's saying here. And see, the great thing about Christ in verse 4 is that God kept the law for me. Somebody would say to me, Bob, what is the greatest thing that God, that Christ accomplished on Calvary? The greatest thing that He accomplished was the fact that where the law was weak, God's Son was strong. Where the law could not pay my sin debt, only could expose my sin debt, Christ could pay my sin debt. He paid my speeding ticket. And then for Christmas gave me a radar detector so I wouldn't get any more. Oh, you're laughing. You're laughing. Did that, was that joyous to you? Did you think that's not true? You think that was one of Bob's little moments? No. He paid it and gave me a radar detector. Yeah. I mean, how does your radar detector work, the one that you say you don't have? Did you try to explain to the highway patrolman that it was a GPS? And he said, we won't need it anymore because I'm going to GPS you to jail. <laughs> Come on with me, see. When it does, you put it in, you plug it in, and it's got internal things in it that picks up signals from, from, from the radar with a guy down the road waiting for you. 
See, when I was growing up, we didn't have that. We used to put tinfoil in our hubcaps. Well, that's what the Bible does. Once you get saved, he pays the sin debt, then he says, here, let me give you a, let me give you a detector that will show you long before. And, you know, some of these detectors, they say it'll pick up a, it'll, it'll pick up, you know, I had one once. I picked up everything. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, had, I, will, I would, somebody said, here, take this to Ohio. You get there faster. It beeped the whole time. I, I was down to 20 miles an hour. It what took me, I mean, I never could figure it out. But inside it is supposed to have the technology that, that picks up what's out there that's going to get you. Well, that's what God gave you here. He gave you a radar detector, and it's a good radar detector. It shows you what's coming your way before you get there and how you can avoid it. That's what the Word of God does. That's what Christ did. Look what he says down here in verse 4. God kept the law from us and fulfilled it. Look what he says. That the righteousness of the law, here it comes, might be fulfilled in us. Not to us, in us. The moment the Holy Spirit of God came inside you, he fulfilled that law. And he did it for you and for me. Then look down here in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. There's that word and a reference. You're going to see this a lot in this passage. And it's a reference to the mind. Mind the things of the flesh. What is a great word? That's a great word. You know, the battle today in reality, when we talk about the flesh versus the spirit, you know where that battle is in reality? It's a battle in your mind. That's where it's at. You know, I've been accused all of my life of taking people and, and brainwashing them, you know. I had a lady one time, she said, well, you're just brainwashing my son. He doesn't want to go out and do all the things with his friends anymore. All he wants to do is sit around and read that Bible. You're brainwashing him. Well, I understand that. And this is why sometimes real Bible gets Christianity gets compared to a cult. I don't know how to tell you this. But that's exactly what God intends to do with you, is brainwash you. He wants to get the wicked, evil, carnal thoughts out of your mind. What does your mother used to say when you said your first swear word? You probably never said a swear word in your life. You're so sweet. Pam, tell us. What would your mother say? (laughs) Okay, you can go now. I used it for my illustration. Thank you. Thanks, John. What does your mother used to say? Scott, what does your mother say? What does your mother say? Steve, what does your mother say? All the time in your case. What, what, did, what does your mother say when you said a bad word? What does she say? I'm going to what? All together now in unison. Now, well, she says there. Here we go. One, two, three. I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Well, this is why I'm such a slippery tongue devil. <laughs> See? Well, where'd she get that? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, the renewing of your mind. How? By the washing of regeneration. Your mother had it half right. She wanted to wash your mouth out with soap, but that really won't fix the problem. Just give you a nice, clean, soapy breath, and, but, but that won't fix the problem. What really needs to be washed is not your mouth, but the mind that put those words into your mouth in to begin with. You know why the Marines are always called as such tough guys? John was in the Marines. Maybe somebody else was in the Marines. 
But if you ever, if you ever had an experience, you had to have an experience of going to boot camp at Camp Lejeune or one of those places where the Marines do them. You know what they do? And the Army does it too. What they do is they completely take from you who you are. They shave your hair that you all look alike. You don't have a name anymore unless he gives you a pet name, and I can't even tell you what some of those are. <laughs> and you're just like everybody else. You're nothing. You're nobody. They, 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 they take completely from you everything you are because their job is to make you into something that, that, that you are not at that point, and that is the United States Marine. The guys that are always go in first, the toughest guys in the world, and probably so. The men and the women who, who wear that uniform and wear that globe and anchor had go back uh, way before World War I, where they fought some of the most desperate battles and stood the line and held the line that we've ever seen in history, and they're quite incredible. But you know what? They didn't get there just by putting on a uniform. Ever notice or watch the war movies when they're, where, I mean, when you're done and you come out of boot camp as a Marine, you think that one person, you, can wick the whole world. And they instill that in you. And, you know, you, you, you're down in there and they take everything from you and then they build you back exactly. You know what they do? They brainwash you. They take you from Joe the civilian to Joe the U.S. Marine. And they build into you the confidence, the mindset, a camaraderie. You know what their, you know what their motto is? It's Semper Fidelis. You know what Semper Fidelis means? Always faithful. That's their creed. That's their mode. That's the way they do it. How do they do that? By brainwashing you. How do they get Joe Schmo to be uh, a guy that, that, that will, will take a, on a, a whole onslaught of enemy and, and just do what he do. How do they get that guy to, when he's in a foxhole with eight or nine other guys and somebody throws a grenade, that he chooses to jump on that grenade to kill himself to sell his face? Why? There's people in this church that, that wouldn't walk across the street if somebody fell down. How did they get them that way? Well, there's a process. They get them to think that they are better and elite more than anybody else in the whole wide world. They sing goofy songs whenever they run, whenever they march. They go out on the street, and they all go in unison. They all sing the same thing. Why? Because they all want to be taught and trained the same way. They sing the same things. They eat the same things. They all look alike the same way because they want to project and bring out of them a oneness and a unity it is. So they run down the road singing things like, napalm, napalm, sticks like glue, get it on the mamas and the children too, and that's where they go, see? Up in the morning with the rising sun, going to run all day till the work is done. Hoorah! And off they go, see? That's what they do. Now, that sounds pretty goofy to me and you. But then you ain't going to have to take a beach someday. Or be in a foxhole when it's freezing. Or stand alone in the face of a whole bonsai charge coming your way. No, 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 no. We'll tuck the coverage in tonight. And, you know, the closest thing we'll ever get to is watching it on TV. But I'm saying is this, what's wrong with you and me is the fact that, yes, in the biblical sense of the word, and everything that you find in the Bible, that's what's wrong. We need to have our minds washed out, our brains, if you please, washed from the filth and the godliness and ungodliness of this world. He talks about the washing of regeneration. 
by the word. He talks about renewing your mind. He talks about uh, the, 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 for us not to mind the things of the flesh. And truly, the battle for you and for me is, is the battle for the mind. And of course, that's where, that's, that's where it's at. Remember I told you? Remember I told you that life is about choices and you are what you think about? And it's, it's incredible what we do. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, that we are to cast down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. You know what that is? That's washing out what you have in here and putting something else in. That's the process. Why? Verse 6. Because verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death. That's, now keep in mind, that's physical condemnation. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You know, this is one of the terrible concepts in all the Bible, yet it's so true. Now, I'm not one who believes in Calvinism or predestination in any form of the, in any form of the concept that's being taught today. But I do believe in the Bible there's such a thing called foreknowledge. And here's what I believe. I believe that God, the moment you get saved, has a plan for you. I believe that God always looks at us in the format of we're going to do what's right. And the reason I know that is because I, I see Israel. And I see God always looking at Israel and telling Israel what they could have even when they haven't got there to get it yet. In other words, I have never found a place except after Israel really screws it up. Where in the initial contact with God and Israel, He ever told them anything negative. He only told them all the good things that He wanted to do. It was their choices that canceled those great promises out. And I'm telling you this. I'll guarantee you, I'm guarantee you, when you got saved, God looks at you through the eyes of everything He wants you to accomplish. And the Bible says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And I want you to know that I believe with everything that's in my power that you as a child of God, even though God has this tremendous plan for you, you can end your life early by the bad choices you make. I look at a man who was the greatest Christian ever lived that God used, and yet because he made one best choice of going down Jerusalem when God told him four times not to, the Apostle Paul, that God cut his short ministry and it ultimately wound up to the end of his life. And he never fulfilled everything that maybe God would have fulfilled for him. While I don't believe, as I said, in any form of Calvinism or predestination, I do believe that the Bible says in verse 6 that we are to be spiritually minded over carnally minded. We got a guy right now that John and I are working with in the prison system. And I've known this guy for a long time. In fact, I want him to Christ. And here's a guy that when he was in prison, he was in for, well, murder and everything else in the whole wide world. He was a drug dealer and a whole nine yards. And he got saved. And, you know, in my life, there's people that got saved that I, that I questioned whether they really got saved or not. But not in this guy's case. This guy got saved. His life completely changed around. And I'll never forget, he finally got out of prison about eight or nine years ago. And uh, I told him, I said, look, you better find a church. He didn't live in town here. You better find a church and you better get a pastor and make yourself accountable. And you better make sure that you're at church every time the door opens, pal. Because you're going to have a tendency to be drawn back into that stuff. 
Now, you know what? In prison, you got our stuff. You couldn't really do anything wrong. Our material was coming in. John was talking with you on the phone. I was talking with you on the phone. We were helping you all the things there. There really wasn't a lot you could get into. It's easy to say, I'm going to serve God when they lock you down 24 hours out of 24 and you can't really get into any problems. But it's when you're back out, and yeah, guess, six months. After a while, I didn't hear from him every week. Like, you know, I could tell right off the way. I'd call his mom, well, we haven't seen him. And you know what? He got into a situation, and in the town that he was living in, he had such a bad reputation that the police hated him, and rightly so. I mean, it wasn't like they said, oh, now he's saved, he's a good guy. No, now they still remembered the old guy, and they were waiting for him. In fact, they, he, he claims he was set up. I have no doubt in my mind that he was not set up. No doubt in my mind. And now he got thrown back in jail about eight years ago, and now he's trying to, and it's very obvious, he's had two or three court-appointed lawyers. It is so obvious that they, they conspired, they didn't bring in all the witnesses, they didn't bring in every day, and now he's trying to get appeal after appeal after appeal to get a new trial. And you know what they're doing? They're sandbagging him every way. They'll get the material that he sends them. They know he's only got 30 days to get it in. They'll send it back with only three days left. The whole system is against him. The prosecutor's against him. The judge is against him. The police officer against him. They all got together and they said, this guy is a bad guy. And we don't want him walking the streets anymore. And we are going to make sure we do whatever we got to do to make sure he never walks, sees daylight again. And they probably will do that. He calls me up on the phone and he complains about the system. Calls me up on the phone and he complains about how unfair it is. And he says to me, what do you think, Bob? You know what my answer is to him? I said, I think if you'd have been to church that night, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's what I think. That's what I think. I think if you'd have made the right choice after you saw the bad choices you made, if you'd have been in church that night, if you'd have been to Bible study that night, if you'd have been over at the pastor's house or somebody's house and they were discipling you, we would not be having this conversation. Because just like there's a law of gravity and a law of aerodynamics, there's a law of sin and death. And there's a law that says that if you do mind the things of the flesh, you're going to die. I've had people in my ministry that used to come to this church and then went back to the world. And their whole idea was, you know what, you know what, we came for a while and then went back to the world and doing the same thing. And, and you know, in and, and multiple times in my life, in multiple times in my life, they have been killed tragically. Sometimes in a car accident, I had one person drowned, had several in car accidents, even had one in a plane crash. I think back of the times that, that they were in a church learning the Bible in fact, I had one person that was actually killed on a Thursday night. And I, somebody called me the next morning because I didn't know the news. And they said, did you hear that so-and-so was killed last night in a tragic accident? And I said, no, I didn't hear that. And their thing to me was, what do you think about that? My answer was this. If she'd have been to Bible study last night, we probably wouldn't have this conversation. Like, folks, there's a reality in life you better grasp. And the quicker you grasp it, the better off you're going to be. 
You want a joyous life? You want a fulfilled life? You want a happy life? You want a joyous life? You want to be productive in life? Then I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the carnal mind is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and what? Peace. I don't know what to tell you. I'm 58 years old. My dad was what, 54 when he died? 55 when he died. When I turned 55, I, 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 I thought about it. And I thought about my own life at 55. And I thought about what I've enjoyed at 55. But I thought to myself, man, I got two little grandkids. I want to see them graduate. I, I, I want to see them get married. I'll, and I will be in on that process of who they marry. <laughs> Zach and William. Zach's marrying the oldest one. and no, You're marrying the oldest one. You're marrying the youngest one. All there is to it. I'm already putting little things in their little minds about it. But she said, Grandpa, I'm having a Big Mac attack. I said, that's a Zach attack you're having. <laughs> Daddy, who was the greatest king of all time? It was William the Conqueror. <laughs> but I look back at my dad. He died when I was, when I was in my early 20s. When I reached 55, I, I, it really looked inside, and I thought to myself, what he must have thought. He never got to see his great-grandchildren. He never got to see what happened to me in my life or my sister. At 55 years of age, it was, life was taken from him. And I thought to myself, I'm 58. I've lived three years longer than my dad had lived. That's a strange feeling. It's strange to put yourself in that mindset that to be dead at 55. And yet, my dad smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. He died of lung cancer. Would he have died of lung cancer without those cigarettes? Probably not. You see, he made a choice. You make choices. I make choices. Some of those choices will cut your life short. Some of those choices will put you in terrible situations. Some of those choices will destroy your liver. Some of those choices where, well, we, Barb and I, uh, you know, when we were in Ohio, I knew a missionary, and I can't not think of his name right now. And it was, it was him and his wife were missionaries to Japan, and he wound up, left the ministry. And Anyway, she was a real cute little guy. He was a tall guy. Remember who I'm talking about? Now, here's a couple that Danny somebody, Danny, uh, well, anyway. But anyway, he... <laughs> It's coming to me. I'll call you tonight at midnight. All of you leave me your number and I'll tell you his last name. <laughs> missionary to Japan. I remember at the Christmas time, we had him in our Christmas missionary thing. And you know what? Something happened. Him and his wife got a divorce. And they found him in an empty New York hotel room. He died of AIDS. You think that was God's plan for him? No. You see, the foreknowledge of God... When you get saved, God looks at your life and my life and He says, this is what I have for you and it's only the best. But when you walk after the flesh instead of after the Spirit, those things come into your life. This is a sobering time, but it's a time in your life when you better look back at last year and compare it to next year. The Bible says to be spiritually minded is, is life and peace. To be carnally minded is death. Spiritually minded, life and peace. You know what? When you got saved, 
Bible says, and we talked about this when we started Romans, we talked about the two concepts, peace with God, peace of God. When you got saved, you got peace with God. Peace with God in the Bible means that you've made your peace with God as a sinner, and now you have peace with God. But the other concept, peace of God, is different entirely. That's for person after you're saved. You see, you made your peace with God when you got saved, but after you get saved, when you walk after the Spirit, you have the peace of God. That's the peace the Bible says passes all understanding. That's the peace that talks about in the book of Philippians where he says, Then the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice the word mind there. There's the verse in Isaiah 26, 3, which says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is what? Stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. You're going through some tough times right now? You're going through some hard times right now? Memorize those two verses. Get your mind stayed on him. Why? Because the carnal mind will always lead you the wrong way. The spiritual mind is a, it's an incredible. It's incredible. You know, I, I, I've dealt with people for many, many years, and I've seen this cycle. I call it the I call it the, the Cain syndrome. Why is it that when bad times come in our lives as a Christian, you know the Bible says in the book of James, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Why is it in bad times come in our lives that we make God our enemy? I, I've never fully understood that, other than that is one of the greatest telltale things that the person wasn't walking in the spirit anyhow. I mean, it's an incredible thing. I mean, we cause the problems ourselves by making bad choices. When the consequences come, we blame God for it or get an attitude with God and getting mad at God because we made the bad choices and that's how we got here. I have never completely understood that. But if you're going through bad times and it's no fault of your own, maybe you just got saved or you're, or you're, or you're coming to the place where you know, you're, you've lost your job or whatever, you'd ever, you'd ever, wherever you're at in your life, you have to come to the place where you cannot put God on the back burner till you get your problem fixed. You can't say, okay, God, I got all these things to do. I'm going to put you over here till I get it fixed, and then I'm going to bring you back in. You'll never get there. That's an illusion. Because when you go through something by yourself, and we're all true of this, when you and I go through something by ourselves, and we don't want to take the accountability for it, we're going to look for somebody else to blame. And in every day of the week, 24-7, you know who's going to get that blame? It's going to be God. I see a little baby die, and the parents say, why did God do this? I see a young teenager get killed in a car wreck, and the parents say, why did God let this happen? Hey, it wasn't God's original plan that anybody ever die. Why do we always think it's God? I'll tell you why, because that's the thought the devil puts in your mind. I call it the Cain syndrome. Genesis chapter 4. Bible says Cain and Abel. And Cain, Abel brings the right sacrifice, Cain brings the wrong sacrifice. And the Bible says that God had respect unto Abel and not unto Cain. And you know what Cain did? He got an attitude. He got an attitude. Bible says that God come out to see him one day and he says, he says, Cain, why, why, why hast thou countenance fallen? You know what that means? It means you went from this to, to that. Why has thou countenance fallen? He says, are you mad at me because you brought the wrong offering and I didn't accept it when I accept your brothers? Is that the issue? Cain says, yeah, that's the issue. He says, no problem. 
hey, go get the right offering, and I'll accept it. You know what Cain did? He stayed mad. You see, the problem wasn't God in the way God dealt with it. The problem was that Cain made the wrong choice and didn't want to reverse the wrong choice and wanted to blame God after he made the wrong choice. Do you ever read the end of the story and see how Cain worked out? Bible says he left the presence of the Lord. That's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. That's exactly where you're headed. You will never fix your problem. I talked about a New Year's resolution to a New Year's revolution. You will never fix whatever problem you have till you get off the throne and put him on. Now I'm going to say something. And I never preach about this, so, but I think you need to hear this. I never say. I, you, I never preach about giving. I never do. I never do. I, you, can't, you, can't, you can't find one message in my, my mess back there of stuff that I ever preached about you giving. I could give a flip whether you give a dime or not. I really could. But the bottom line is this. Some of you have got yourself in a real financial mess. And you know how you got there? You got there by not putting God first when you had the opportunity to do it. You got there because you thought not 100% of your income would go a lot farther without God's blessing than 90% with God's blessing. That's what got you in the mess you're in. And you will never figure your problem out, and you'll never get around that problem, and it's always going to be something else till you realize that God owns everything you have. And it's an illusion to think that you're in charge of anything. tell you something. I could care less whether we keep this building or whether we don't. I wasn't looking for it when we got it. God gave it to me. I was just as happy where as I was. You will never hear me get up and say to you, you guys, you guys really need to start giving. You know what? This should, I, first of all, I think it's an absolutely an insult for any pastor to get up in front of saved people and say, why aren't you giving? I think it's an absolute joke. I think it's, it insults my intelligence. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not telling you this because of the fact that we're, we're, we're going to, the, the building is going to fall. That's not even the case. My point is this. My point is this. This is my point. This is your church. I didn't decide to get this building. We sat down and we said, hey, you know what? It's going to cost us this much amount of money. This is what we need to do. And everybody in this church, except one person, voted for it. And that's what we did. You will never hear me get up and you'll never hear me say, you'll never hear me get up and you'll never hear me say, hey, look, we're not meeting our bills this month. Never, never. You know why? To me, that's an insult. And I'm, we're making our bills. Don't misunderstand me. I'm giving you my point of reference here. I will never do that. I think it's an insult to God if you're here this morning and you're his child and this is your home and you're freeloading. May I use that word? I don't really care whether you can or not. I just did. You know what I'll do? This is what I'll do. I'll come up here some Sunday morning and I'll simply say this. We're downsizing the ministry. God gave us this. We didn't step up to the plate. You know what? Here's what we got to do. We're going to go back to a couple of options. We're going to go back to a couple of options where we give up this 24-7 and we just rent the outside thing there uh, because of the fact the two days a week and we'll work it out with Larry. 
I don't care. I've come to the point where I have Chris write a letter to everybody in the church that feels to be a member of the church. And I say this, I know that there's some of you in here that are young young guys, only been here a short time, a year or so, and I'm not even talking to you. But you know what? Tough economic times are coming. And I, and I hear it all the time from, my, from the good people. We got people that don't show up to work in the nursery on their scheduled time. You say, well, I had so many things. Did your phone break? You know what happens? Somebody else has to go in who worked their shift last week to cover your shift because you were so busy in life. It happens all the time. Happens all the time. Now, I don't care. You know what? I'll teach the Bible just to hear myself because I'm that good. (laughs) We don't have to have a nursery. Find your own babysitter. Well, I can't come then. So long, senorita, so sorry. I don't know what to tell you. We have it, and you don't take care of it. You think, I'll tell you what. I'll just go in, and somebody else can teach it. There's a responsibility here. But this is the fundamental problem that got us into problems in the first place. I'll have Chris write a letter. Everybody that's, that's a tithing member of this church, here's where we're meeting. Everybody else, go find somebody else to freeload off of. We don't have the room. We got to go back to my house. We got to go to somebody else's house. We can't house 165 people. We're just going to have to take the ones who took the ministry serious, you see. Now, the concept is this, folks. The concept is this. It's those kind of things that get you into problems every time. Because everything else comes first instead of God, including this church, including your responsibility. And I'm just telling you. Somebody says, well, I, I, I did. And, and please get the right attitude about this. Do I think for a second that if you don't tithe, that the, that, that the lights are going to go out in heaven next week? That the angels are going to run up to the throne? Well, they didn't tithe. What are we going to have to keep the lights on? The angels aren't going to eat. Come on, you know that giving has nothing to do with God. It's for your benefit, not for God. You know why? Because it teaches you a system and a format to put God first in your life with almost the number one thing we want to hoard. That's all it is. That's all it is. Hang on, you'll be out of here in about 20 minutes, and then you can forget all about it. That's a law found all the way back in Malachi. That's a law. Somebody says, well, I can't afford to give. You can't afford not to. You know why? Because it sets the precedent in your life that no matter what, I'm going to trust God to get me through, and this is a law. And that's where the basic fundamental break comes in. And you'll never fix whatever problem you got till you get yourself off the throne and you start trusting Him no matter what situation and here in, and you put Him first and cut the attitude that He's to blame. How do you in the world, when you're discipling somebody, how in the world, how in the world do you teach them to trust God when you can't teach, trust Him yourself? Look at verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. By choice, ladies and gentlemen, it's not subject to the book. By choice. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Know ye not that the friends of this world is enmity with God? And the last part of that verse defines the word enmity. It says, Whosoever therefore, because of what he just said, 
will be a friend of this world is the enemy of God. That's one of the greatest reality checks in this world. You know what he just told you? He just gave you the defining verse on the word enmity. The word enmity in the Bible means enemy. That's a very sobering thought, isn't it? It's a very sobering thought. If the Bible's right, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm not even, and I have no doubt in my mind that it's not. If the Bible is right, most of God's people saved are God's enemy. No wonder their life's in an armpit. No wonder they can't get out of the hole they're in. Your adversary is not the devil. Your adversary is not the world. Your adversary is not the flesh. Your adversary is God, the one that saved you. Because your carnal mind can't line up with his holy mind. And you become enmity to God, which by the Bible's definition, you are now God's enemy while you're his child. Go figure that one out. You're trapped in Job chapter 9, verse 4, where it says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and prospered. And you think you're the exception to the rule. I think I'm the exception to the rule. And that's not true, ladies and gentlemen. See, it's about the mind. It's about the mind. It's about letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's, like, it's, it's about the mind, getting the mind washed out, not making God your enemy when your world comes apart because of the bad choices we made. That draw nigh to God. Put God into it. Use the principles of God. No matter what happens, keep God first in your life. And give God what's His. Look at verse 8. Very simple verse. So, so then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I told you this thing was packed with practical application. It is the greatest single place where it all is found in one one bunch. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You know what the Christian battle is? Well, the Bible says it's the world, James chapter 4, verse 4, the flesh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the devil, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But the reality of that is, and all that is true, but in your life and my life, let me tell you something, you and I don't have to worry about the world. I'll tell you something else, you and I certainly don't have to worry about the devil. I'll tell you the biggest thing that slows us up. We do the best job. We give, devil, we give the devil in the world more free time to be working on other people in all the wide world than anybody in the world. You know why? Because God's people, the thing that messes us up is our flesh. It's our flesh. You know your flesh is based on your senses? You know the new buzzword and the word all around, the sexual context is the word sensual? Sensual comes from the word senses. Our senses is what our flesh sees, what our flesh touches what our flesh smells, what our flesh hears, what our flesh feels. Now, in the Bible, this is called walking by sight, not by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says that you and I should walk by faith and not by sight. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a saved person here today, I'm just telling you, you want some great advice for the new year? You want some really good advice for the new year? You want to get a revolution going in your life? You dethrone who's running it right now and put him on the throne. You make up your mind that this year you're going to be out of control. I saw driving down the road the other day and I looked at a goofy car in front of me and, and there was a bumper sticker in the back that said, God is my co-pilot. Grew up alongside and looked over at the specimen driving and thought to myself, was guaranteed God ain't the pilot. <laughs> God doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be the pilot. He don't want to be somebody you order around. He wants you to follow the commandments that He's given you. He wants you to wash your mind out. He wants you to put the principles in. He wants you to realize that He has something for you. 
that he, the day you got saved, he had everything planned out for you. You and I cut it short. You and I cut it short. We're the ones that, that, that ruin our lives, ruin our ministry, ruin the opportunity to lose so much time. It's you and me. It's you and me. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You ever stop and wonder how you do please God? It all goes back to that same context. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith is it impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and he that is rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. It takes faith. You can't claim to have faith in God and not trust God in everything you do in life. You can't say, I walk by faith and not by sight, when you're looking over your shoulder every five minutes to, to uh, wonder what your next move is going to be. You can't say, I walk by faith and I walk by sight, when you have that thing and God is the farthest thing put out of your world and you just get your own problem fixed first and then you bring God back into the equation. That's talk, not walking by faith and not by sight. And all through my life, I've seen people do that. I've seen people forget about God and the first thing that comes something down there, they blame God. They get an attitude toward God. They think that God, why would you do this? God didn't do a thing. God didn't do a thing. God wants you to have a fulfilled, loving, long, joyful, productive life. And he wrote you the book to show you how to have it. It's our choices. It's our choices. Can't blame God for that. And sooner or later, you're going to have to trust him. Sooner or later, you're going to have to put it in his hands. Now look at verse 9, 10, 11, 12. We'll look at these collectively. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is light because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. But if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. You know what the bottom line is to hold this thing? You, you, you just got to put, you just got to put, oh, there's a few other things you want to put here, but you got to get, you want to understand this passage? Just put one little comment next to it. The bottom line is this. If you're saved, you should live like it. It's that simple. If you're saved, then you should live like it. If you're saved, then you ought, to, you ought to put God number one in your life. Everything else comes in second. That's the way it is. William and I were talking this last week, and William asked me a great question that so many young Christians ask me. And William is an active young guy, and he does a lot of things going, but he loves God and he loves the Word of God. And he asked me this week, if you don't mind me telling this little story, he asked me this week how to really balance your life for God. He says, I got this, 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 this. He says, tell me, how do you really balance your life for God? And a, and a question kind of caught me off guard for a minute because I was going to give him my standard answer, which is right, but, but I thought the thing through and the way he asked it and knowing his world and his life the way I do, I, I, I track and I told him this. I said, you know what, William? I said, you do have to balance your life. You have to get everything in its appropriate thing where everything gets balanced out with time. Your job, your music, this, that, all these things. But I said, in reality, within that balance, and I'm not sure I can tell you how to do this, I'm just telling you, you've got to figure out a way to do this. In reality, even though you've got to balance your life out, in reality, everything is in one pile and God's over here and he's number one. You know, Joe asked a good question about two th Thursday nights ago. 
I remember we started coming through 1 Corinthians 7 about the uh, marriage deal, and we talked about, uh, uh, we got through some of them, and we were going to finish them up Thursday night, but the weather was bad, so I told them that we'd wait, because Joe wasn't here, and we're going to wait and do it after New Year's and back. But one of the things that he says in there, and I thought about this when you asked me that, one of the things that he says in there about people that are married, he basically says, if you're married, if you're a husband and you have a wife, he says, you ought to live your life like you have no wife at all. That's a strange thought. What does that mean? Does that mean I just get married and tell my wife, well, sorry, honey, I'm not married. I'm going out to serve Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all. He says, them that have, then them that has wives has they have no wives at all. Does that mean you just, that, does that mean you just, you know, get married and then you say, well, the ministry's first. Sorry, sweetheart, I can't be home tonight. And you, you, you take the kids here and you do this. I'm da, 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 da. I got I to gotta unstop deaf ears, give eyesight back to the blind, res dead people and all these things. I can't be there. That's not what he's talking about. You know what happens to so many young married couples when they get married? They don't understand the concept of marriage anyhow. Do you ever look at the concept of marriage? You see, the Bible says two people. Look, read it in Ephesians sometime. Ephesians 5. And then after you get married, when you get married, and in the day you get married, what you want to spend time with is Ephesians chapter 5, which is all the blessings of marriage. After six months, you move over to Ephesians 6, which is the battle of the warfare. See, that's where it comes in. See? <laughs> I've seen some marriages I presided over instead of, they sing those songs, you know, um, I, and I think they ought to sing The Fight Is On. <laughs> I think that would be much more appropriate. But you know what it says? Here's the thing. It says this. you got a man, you got a woman. And the Bible says, the Bible says when those two get married, those two become one. Well, how in the world, if marriage is two people, how in the world when two become one, can you have a marriage because it takes two to have a marriage? That's because the second person of that marriage is made up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? And so when he's talking about even those that are married or have wives that they have none, he's talking in that sense. Because many, many people who get married, they get too married. They think it's about them. They don't understand that the reason they got married was that together they could serve God. And what happens is the reason they get married is so they can have all of their life together and they forget God. It's the same thing in every area. The number one thing in our world that we have a problem with as human beings, and this is why this is such a good Christmas marriage, is it's me first and God second. And you've got to get around that. You've got to realize that that's not going to work. If you want to have a healthy life and a great life and a long life and all of the things and the benefits of life and a fulfilled life and all of those things, it only comes because you have the blessings of God in your life because there is no now no condemnation to them that walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. That's simple. Then we find another great word. And that word is the word mortify. He says in here, the bottom line is, if you're saved, you should live like it. That's very simple, very easy. Personally, in my own personal life, knowing what I know about the world and life and the way it is out there, I, I think there's very few, very few people today that really have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. We have people come into this church. We have people come into this church and they, they last for about six months, you know. They get saved. Some of you begin to work with them. And you know what? Then you just see them right back to the world. Somebody says, well, are they saved? Well, obviously, I can't look in anybody's heart. I got to go by the Bible. The Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. 
All I got to do is go by the Word of God. You take a young guy or a young gal or somebody that comes in five or six times in two years and, 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 and keeps going back out to the world and keeps going back into the thing and keep, can't, and keep making the bad choices. And you know what? You look at that and you say to myself, I thought the Bible said if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. What happened? What happened to the old things passing away? What happened? How can a man be saved and go back to the world and not even feel bad about it for a second? Here's the answer to that, by the way. We like to lie a lot in our lives today. We lie about everything. We lie to God. We lie to our friends. We lie to this. We lie to that. And most importantly, we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves everything is okay when it's not. We tell ourselves everything is okay when it's not. We tell ourselves, you don't need to get Bob involved in this. I can handle it when you can't. You say to yourself, well, I don't need to take this to God. I can deal with it when you can't. And what happens is you wind up lying to yourself and then you deceive yourselves. People who lie a lot have one real problem that manifests itself over time. And maybe you never dealt with habitual liars. But I have, and they come to the point where you can never tell when they're telling you the truth. You know why that is? Because they don't know when they're telling the truth. They have deceived themselves for so long with so much. And when it comes to salvation, they have lied to themselves about everything else in life. What, do you, what makes you think they're finally going to get a reality here? And that's why. They make a profession, they come for a while, and then they blow right back out to the world. In reality, nothing really changed. And that's what happens. The Bible says if you're a saved man or a woman, if you're a person who would really, uh, you know, uh, your life will change. You know, if you want to have, have a long life and you want to have everything that God wants you, the blessings, uh, then you, we already saw in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, a key word where he says, reckon yourself dead. Now we find another word, and that word is to mortify. He says in verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. You know what mortify means? It means to destroy. It means to subdue by, by bringing it into subjection. You don't owe your flesh anything. You don't owe your flesh anything. I don't owe my flesh. It is a source of all our problems. And the sooner you get rid of it, the better off you'll be. But you see, that day's not coming for a while. The redemption of your body is yet future, Romans chapter 8. But you and I have today, have to reckon ourselves. We have to make sure we walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. We have to make sure that we put the things of God first in our lives. We don't get sidetracked when problems come, that we blame God. We don't give God what He desires and what He commands of us. We don't do what's right with Him. We always give Him His due and everything He wants and then allow Him by faith to work out our situations in life. I've told people over the years, for a child of God, the greatest position for you and me to be in, and I've said this, believe this all my life, the greatest position as a child of God that you and I can find ourselves in, I liken it to a guy hanging way out on the limb of a tree, 500 feet above the ground. And you're hanging onto that limb, and that, you can't hardly move because that limb is going to crack and going to break if you put any weight on So you're just stuck there. And then you look back, at the tree itself, and lo and behold, there stands your Savior, Jesus. But instead of giving you a hand and throwing you a rope, you see that you're Jesus while you're hanging on the limb that's ready to crack. He's standing there with a smile on his face and a hacksaw in his hand. Now that's my position you want to be in. You have to trust him. 
You have to realize that there's no situation. The truth of the matter is, there's no situation he'll put you in. And the truth of the matter is, there's no situation you'll put yourself in that you can't get out if you want to. But you don't get out by walking after the flesh, only after the spirit. You don't get out by making God your enemy. You get out by drawing nigh to God, putting him first in your life. I want to leave you with a great verse. Well, verse 14 first, and then we'll be done here. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, I don't know what better I could have given you on the time that we're living today with the problems that God's people have. If you wanted another fuzzy feeling, nice message that'll make you feel good to the afternoon and then when the reality comes in next week, you fall apart, you came to the wrong place today. I want to see you come to the point where you have the victory of God in your life. I want to see every one of you live above the circumstances. I want to see you be able to get out of the hole you buried yourself in and get to the point where you stand alone and you get that thing with God in your life that you can become everything that God wants you to be. This is one of the most practical Lessons that you'll ever find in your life. I do not know anywhere in the Bible where there's more material packed into this thing that sums it all up of what your life and my life should be. Now, I I said some things here that, that I don't want to be taken the wrong way. First of all, you young Christians, when I said what I said about giving and all of those things, I realized that when a person comes in, you have to give because of you recognizing what God has given to you. And it takes some time for you to do that. I, just ignore my words as far as do not walk out of here and say, well, you know what? He was talking to me. I'm not talking to you. Everybody here, and you young Christians have been coming a short time and you're finding yourself and you've got precarious situations at home and all of these things and situations. You know what? That's not what I'm talking about. And if you think that was a plea to have this church give more money, I'll tell you what, I could care less one way or the other. It isn't about that. I said it earlier. Your giving is not for your bene- God's benefit. It's for your benefit. But it's a place where you start to trust God. If you can't trust in God with that, you'll never trust Him with anything. And that's where you have to be. Now, I want to leave you with a great verse. And this really sums it up. You don't have this verse in your repertoire of verses. You need to put this verse in. You definitely need to mark it in your Bible. And you need to memorize it. Probably most of you already have. But it's a great verse. And it's a verse that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a New Year's verse. All of this that we talked about today will tie right into what we're going to do on New Year's Eve. A year that ends the bad choices. A year that ends walking after the flesh. And a year that starts walking into the Spirit. And I want to show you how to do that New Year's Eve. But I want to give you a great verse, a familiar verse to me. I know it like I know everything in my life. I, I, this verse has been with me for so long. And it's probably with a lot of you. It's in Proverbs chapter 3. If, we, if you have 3 by 5 cards, I'm sure you have this on here. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. But it says it all. And I want to leave you with this thought today. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You want the, you want the secret in a verse? You want everything that I've talked about today consigned in a verse? There it is. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. That's what got us in the mess we're in. Lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways, all your ways, everything you do, acknowledge Him and He will direct thy path. That's the key. I want you to have a long life. I want you to have a successful life. 
I look at you, and I told you this before, the thing that, that is the hardest thing of the ministry to me, I can put up with all the crazies, I can put up with all the, the abuse, I can put up with all the things. I think the thing that is the most hardest thing for me in dealing with people is to see men and women who have the potential to really do something for God. All they lack is the determination and the attitude to get it done. I look at them and, you know, I, I nowhere can see them as God sees them. I have no idea what God's plan is for them. But I do know this. I know that God has a plan for every child of God once they get saved. I saw it in Jeremiah. Bible said that God knew Jeremiah before he was formed in the world, at womb, and he laid out everything that he wanted Jeremiah to accomplish. And I believe with all of my heart that's foreknowledge in the Bible. And I believe that God knows you and has a plan for you and everything that he wants for you to have. And I also believe that our flesh will unchoose and make the wrong choices against what God wants us to do. That's why you have to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not that I don't understand Break the verse down. It breaks down into three or four simple concepts. Trust in the Lord, one, with all thy heart, two, and lean not on that understanding, three. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, because the next one, and he shall direct your path. Four or five concepts. You can break it down, and you live by him. And that's where we're at. And that's what I want for you this next year. And many of you are going to make it happen. But you have to put him number one in your life. And that's what it takes. Every head bowed and every eye closed.